There is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Let's pray together. Thank you, holy God, for this community of justice and joy, compassion and peace. Thank you for being here. Oh God, we would see Jesus. Bless us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. My biggest problem with Paul may surprise you. It isn't what he says about women. My biggest problem with Paul is that he was okay watching someone get stoned to death. I can't imagine that kind of person. Now, perhaps that speaks to my sheltered and comfortable life, but I just can't imagine having a close friend like that who could watch someone, anyone, being killed and approve of it. I know what some of you may be thinking, but he experienced a conversion, one where he was given a vision of the resurrected Christ. Paul changed. And I agree. Amen for God's amazing grace. Truly, it gives us all hope. But how much remained of that earlier Paul? The personality and perspective that that could justify persecuting people who believed differently from him. From Paul's own written documents, we hear him say that even from a young age, he was zealous for God's law. It was part of his wiring. And zeal for God's law meant exclusion of those outside of Judaism. Yet, he received a commission from God to help people grow together in Christ. An example of this ministry of, of bringing people together is found in the book of Acts, when, when Paul goes to Philippi. And as he's going to a place to pray, a slave girl meets him. I can't imagine two people less alike He's a Jew, she's a Gentile. He's an adult male, she's a young female. He's educated, a Pharisee, a Roman citizen. She's a slave. He has the Holy Spirit working in his life. She has an evil spirit working in hers. He's spending his days sharing the life-saving gospel with people, and she's a fortune teller. He's free, and she's forced to make money for the men who own her and do who knows what else for them. In his former life, Paul, even if he noticed her, would only see the differences. Even in this story, her humanness doesn't seem to touch Paul. He, he comes across as more annoyed at her than anything. 
but he does say words to the evil spirit that will jeopardize his own freedom. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. Gradually, gradually, Paul sees people in a new way. Eventually, Paul will be moved by the conviction that he and this slave girl in Philippi, with all their differences, were more alike than they were different. They were both sinners saved by a gracious God. I think of that slave girl when I hear Paul share God's grace in his letter to the Philippians. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The gospel is Jesus becoming a human, a slave, dying on a cross. That picture of the Messiah changed everything. It changed Paul's picture of God. And it changed Paul's picture of people. I think of that slave girl when I hear Paul share God's grace in his letter to Philemon. If you consider me your partner, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me as your beloved brother. I think of that slave girl when I hear Paul share God's grace in his letter to the Galatians. Our scripture for this morning, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think of that restored slave girl when I hear Paul share God's grace in his letter to the Romans. There is no one who's righteous, not even one. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul could no longer embrace a, a hierarchy of humans where zeal for God's law and a sense of entitlement had built up hierarchy. God's grace broke it down. I was 13 when this, when this focus on the gospel came to my Adventist family. God's grace, and this grace as a basis for equality. God's grace as the great equalizer. I remember it hit me that we'd always been Adventist, but now we were Adventist Christians. It was about that same time that I heard a preacher use a famous story that's been attributed to Dwight L. Moody. I'm sure quite a few of us in this sanctuary today have heard this story before, but I share it again and for the rest of us. It's the story of a terrible train crash that took place outside a small town in the Colorado Rockies. It starts that by telling that part of the railroad at the bottom of a long grade had, had washed away in a storm. And learning about it, the railroad company telegraphed the watchman of a station further up the hill to tell him about the washout. 
and to have him flash a lantern and stop the train that was making its way there so that the passengers could safely spend the night in that little village. It was the job of the watchman to to wave the lamp to warn locomotive engines of danger ahead on the railroad tracks. But that night, for some reason, the train did not stop. It continued down the hill and off the tracks and into the ravine. And there was great loss of life. Of course, an investigation was convened and the watchman was called to the stand. And the judge started with the question, did you wave the lamp? And the watchman responded, yes, sir, I waved the lamp. So why didn't the train stop? You'll have to ask the engineer. We can't ask the engineer. He's dead. Did you wave the lamp? Yes, sir, I waved the lamp. To every question after that asked by the judge, the watchman answered, I waved the lamp. After the inquest, even though the watchman had been acquitted of any responsibility, he grew anxious and agitated and could find no peace. When a friend told him that it it wasn't his fault, after all, he'd done his job, he'd, he'd waved the lamp. The watchman confided in his friend. Yes, I waved the lamp, but there was no light in it. That night he had become distracted, and and when the watchman heard the train coming, he, he grabbed his lamp, but hadn't lit the light. The preacher back in my early teen years concluded his sermon with a challenge to us. If you're not talking about God's grace, then you're waving a lamp without a light. You may be giving lots of frantic energy, but it's a lamp that can't save anybody. We need the light of God's grace. For Paul, his his zeal for the law became frantic energy when compared to the light of the gospel. A blinding light that changed his vision forever. Seeing Jesus changed everything. It changed Paul's picture of God and it changed Paul's picture of other people. Fast forward. Fast forward to Paul's very last visit to Jerusalem to the primarily Jewish Christians living in that city when Paul met up with James and the other leaders. Paul had left Gentile Christian communities that were indeed growing together in Christ all over the Roman Empire. And Paul had brought an offering from those churches to share with the poor Christians living in the packed city of Jerusalem. It was an opportunity for the the daughter churches and the mother church to, to grow together in Christ. James and the elders of the Jerusalem church listened as he, as he told them the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Acts 21, 19. While we aren't told the specifics, we can imagine Paul telling experiences where the Holy Spirit moved in the hearts of people. God-fearers who, who opened up their homes as house churches. Greek people and Roman people who embraced the Jesus story and told their friends. 
Women and men and children and teenagers who had joined the Jesus movement, turning away from the sexual immorality associated with pagan temples and embracing the ethics of Christian discipleship. The very first response of James and the others there in Jerusalem was, Praise God! Acts 21.20 It's good that you're growing. But, and their second response was, you need to be more like us. Prove that you're zealous for God's law. The Spirit working in his ministry wasn't enough. The large offering gift from the Gentile Christians wasn't enough. They say to Paul, we've had evangelistic success too, especially among Jews zealous for the law. But among them, there is a rumor that you don't care about Moses. And so our committee has met, and our advice as your leaders is for you to do what we tell you, Acts 21, 23. And then they suggested how Paul could prove that he was indeed zealous for God's law. They have an agenda. Paul needs to show that he has embraced their vision of Christianity. It's hard to know if Paul was aware that the political climate in Jerusalem had changed since his last visit. Jews had become much more focused on loyalty to the temple, that center of Jewish religion and society and economics. A heightened Jewish patriotism had taken over. And with Jewish nationalism came an anti-Gentile mindset that was intolerant of any non-Jews. Christian Jews joined in with this atmosphere. And instead of fearing Paul's zeal as they had during the time of Stephen, now there were thousands of Jews similar to that earlier Paul. This this shift in the cultural environment around the temple and in the streets of Jerusalem had shaped the church's witness as well. It too had become more nationalistic and therefore more mistrusting of Gentiles, a more polarized society. By the end of the decade, the nationalistic Jews would start a war with Rome that ends with the destruction of their beloved temple, a loss known by readers of Luke's two volumes. The leaders in Jerusalem ask Paul to prove that his theology agreed with theirs. After all, they're trying to keep a very diverse church together during a politically charged time. Was this a moment to promote church harmony? Or was this a conscience versus compliance moment? Paul did what he was asked to do. He purifies himself. He pays huge sums of offerings to the temple. And he remains in the temple for the required seven days. I wonder if during that week 
he recalled his earlier life in Judaism. Especially as he walked past the sign on the barrier wall between the court of the Gentiles and the other temple courts. As he read the sign, no foreigner is to go beyond. Whoever is caught doing so has himself to blame for his death which will follow. How very different from the proclamation by Jesus, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. How different from the letter to the Ephesians, but now Christ Jesus is our peace, who has made both groups into one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. given Paul's understanding of the gospel, of of God's grace given to everyone through Jesus Christ, how could he walk into the space of the temple reserved only for Jews and then the space of the temple reserved only for men? At that point was his compliance compromising God's grace. Some commentators suggest that it was and Mrs. White agrees. Ellen White, the founder of the Adventist Church, reflects in one of her books called Acts of the Apostles on this very story of Paul and his interactions with the leadership of the Christian church in Jerusalem. Paul, while he wanted to grant this concession, quote, he was not authorized of God to concede as much as they asked. Wanting to be in harmony with his brethren, Paul deviated from the firm, decided course that he had hitherto followed. But instead of accomplishing the desired effect, his efforts for conciliation only precipitated the crisis, hastened his predicted sufferings, and resulted in separating him from his brethren depriving the church of one of its strongest pillars and bringing sorrow to Christian hearts in every land. Ellen White also has some strong words for the leaders in Jerusalem. Given the leading brethren's prejudices against Paul's methods in his ministry, quote, some determined that the work of preaching the gospel must henceforth be conducted in accordance with their own ideas. If Paul didn't go along with their policies, they could no longer look upon his ministry with favor or grant it their support. What could have been a golden opportunity for the Gentile and Jewish Christian churches to come together as the gift offering from the Gentiles is delivered to the Jews, instead, the leaders in Jerusalem permitted the reports of Paul's enemies to arouse their jealousy and prejudice. Instead of uniting in an effort to do justice to the one who had been injured, They gave him counsel that showed that they still cherished a feeling that Paul should be held largely responsible for the existing prejudice. Had the leaders in the church fully surrendered their feeling of bitterness toward the apostle, the Lord would have spared him to them. God had not ordained that Paul's labors should so soon end, but God also didn't work a miracle to counteract their actions. 
She comes to the end of this chapter by saying the same spirit is still leading to the same results. How often would the Lord have prolonged the work of some faithful minister had that minister's labors been appreciated? After Paul does what they ask, all that they ask, as the seven days of his time in the temple are nearing their completion, guess what Paul gets accused of? Of not keeping God's law. A group of Jews from Asia Minor stir up the crowd. They actually physically accost Paul, yelling, this man is against the people, i.e. our people. This man is against the law, Torah. This man is against this place, the temple. At the very moment that he's fulfilling a vow meant to honor Jewish law and the temple, Paul is accused of defiling it. They think that he's brought Gentiles beyond the sign. And they drag Paul out of the temple because you can't shed human blood inside the temple. So they drag him out and they start beating Paul to death. And he's actually saved by Roman soldiers but it's the beginning of the end for Paul. As he tells the crowd his testimony, as he starts to tell them his Damascus Road story, the crowd starts going ballistic. And it's not when he starts talking about Jesus. It's when he recounts how God has sent him to minister to the Gentiles. The crowd starts tearing their clothes. He has to die, they cry out. Luke's book of Acts begins Paul's story with him being zealous for the law, and it results in Stephen's death. And Acts ends with Paul trying to appease those zealous for the law, and it results in his death. And I wonder if Luke was inspired to write Acts this way in order to teach future readers of the connection between Jesus and Gentiles. Paul's zeal approved Stephen's death because Stephen embraced Jesus as the Messiah. The Jews' zeal approved Paul's death because Paul embraced Gentiles as children of God. The Acts narrative connects not only Stephen and Paul in fascinating ways, but it also connects Jesus and Gentiles. To embrace Jesus as Stephen did is to embrace Gentiles as Paul did. Until recently, I saw Paul's compliance as admirable. He was trying to appease the church leaders. He was, he was trying to, to help them all stay together, to survive and even thrive. But, but now I'm not so sure. Ellen White and others suggest that the, the leaders in Jerusalem were wrong to ask what they did. She says that Paul was wrong to go along. But if Paul's ministry was about bringing people together, what was wrong with trying to appease the Jews who were jealous for the law? If it, if it would achieve that same goal, if, if it would bring people together? When is it wrong? And how to know? And when is it wrong to compromise? 
when it is the gospel that's being compromised. When the, when the compromise goes against God's grace. The problem was that, that to appease the Jews, Paul had to go where Gentiles couldn't go, beyond the court of the Gentiles. The problem was that to appease the Jews, Paul had to go where women could not go, beyond the court of the women. It was at that point that Paul's actions became an issue at the very core of the gospel, because such actions suggested a limit to God's grace. Paul knew God's grace was unlimited, given to all people. He shouldn't have been asked to act against his convictions, against his conscience. O oh, Church of the Advent Hope, Adventist Forum, people are longing for God's grace. And in our world today, people are riding a train whose broken tracks end in tragedy. Desperately needed are people who will wave the lamp. Let's wave the lamp with the light of God's grace shining in it. Sharing God's grace was, was at the very heart of Paul's ministry. Because seeing Jesus changed everything for Paul. It changed his picture of God and his picture of other people. And Paul knew it was the grace of God that makes it possible to grow together in Christ. Amen.